Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. What a weekend of weather. I hope you all enjoyed it. I hope you were at the beach or in the park. Um, and I hope you had a feeling, even just a little taste, that there's a normal returning, even though it's happening quite slowly. I was up in St. Anne's Park um, in Clontarf in Rohini, and it was so gorgeous up there. The market was open for the first time in ages, and it's just lovely to see everyone out and enjoying themselves. So have to hold on to the good things and the zoo is opening today actually so that's something I reckon there'll be people going to the zoo who haven't been there in years since they were kids so that's somewhere else we can go it's just nice to see the horizons broadening in whatever way now just a reminder that we're going to be celebrating our 500th episode soon with an event called older and bolder which is what we are We'll be giving you more details soon about that. But save the date, Thursday, May 6th, because we want as many of you to join us as possible, even virtually on Zoom. Today's episode is all about the Internet and social media and the shadow it casts on all of our lives. And in 2016, that shadow caused my guest today, Roisin Kybird, to have a breakdown. And she joined me to talk about that. I was so deep in dysfunction as a way of life um, that I didn't realize any of it was actually wrong. Like, and it's scary that it can happen. And I mean, it definitely happened to me before with eating disorders too. And you have these kind of moments where someone will actually just tell you, like sit you down. But with depression and with kind of almost like the aftermath of all these other unresolved issues in my life, yeah, it, it, it was harder to spot. Like since the book has come out, friends have said to me, like, I didn't know. And I said, yeah, because the very nature of it was that I had disappeared. Like I had completely disappeared from everyday life. I wasn't seeing real people anymore. I was just always working, never sleeping, always like neurotically pondering things. We all live online now. And the line between the internet and real life has become porous to the point of meaningless. Roisin Kybird knows this better than anyone else. She has worked for tech startups. She's been the online voice of a cheese. She's seen the bloated excesses of tech conferences and she's explored the strangest communities on the World Wide Web. And she's traced the ripples these hidden worlds have sent through our culture and politics. And she's experienced the disorienting effects on her own life. In her new book, The Disconnect, Roisin illuminates this subject with fierce clarity, revealing the ways we are more connected than ever before and the disconnect that this breeds. She talks about the lure of the endless scroll, 
the glamour of self-optimization. She's got very good stuff to say on addiction to energy drinks, uh, silicone town centres and dating tech bros, which was actually my favourite part of the book. She explores the strange worlds, habits and people that have grown within the internet. And she asks what we've gained and what we've lost and what we have given willingly away in exchange for this very connected life. I began by asking Roisin why she wrote her book, The Disconnect. Thanks so much for having me on. It's, it's an honour. Um, yeah, The Disconnect, its subtitle is A Personal Journey Through the Internet. And that's very much what it is. It, it's a collection of essays which, you know, sort of come together into a bigger narrative. So I've been calling it a book, but it's also a book of essays. They can stand alone, they can stand together. All of which explore the intersection of technology and life. Um, and, you know, life being as big and vast and like complicated as it is, it branches into all these different areas. So, I mean, there's one section on the kind of cosmic horror of Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg. There's one that's almost like, uh, to, to be kind of silly about it, it's monster energy semiotics. It begins by like analyzing the branding of energy drinks. And then it turns into being about, you know, how we're always required to be on, how, how jobs just don't end. And like energy is this kind of limited thing, but in a world where the internet never sleeps. And then it becomes, I mean, maybe this doesn't seem probably, it becomes a love story. Um, it starts in going into, you know, I go on these dates with dating apps um, in two chapters. They're called Men Explain the Apocalypse part to Me, part one, part two. And uh, one is an account of all these online dates and the other is a kind of analysis. And then it builds towards ultimately love in the age of the internet, which to me is one of the most important things. Really, in the book, I wanted to address what I think are the most important things in life and how they are, you know, happening to us right now, but how on the internet it never feels quite real. But all of these things carry a lot of weight, you know, how we spend our lives. It's being affected in this strange, almost imperceptible way where technology is woven into every aspect of it. So I wanted to untangle that in the book. It feels like to me when I started reading the book that you were kind of born to write this book because you start off with the year you were born and the month you were born in and how that uh, chimed with the timing of the whole creation of the internet in the first place. That chapter, so the first chapter is called um, A History of the World Since 1989. And you know, the weirdest part of it all is I wrote that chapter after I sold the book. So I hadn't drawn attention to that fact. And like, I knew it, I knew that that coincidence existed, that I was born in March, 1989, and that Tim Berners-Lee created the proposal for the WWW, WLAIR, which is like the World Wide Web, basically, the internet as we know it today. He created that in the same month and the same year. Um, and yeah, it was only when we started, I started talking to my editor who'd bought the book that we started to realize like there was this perfect coincidence and that this could set up the premise of the entire book, which is basically, you know, life through and alongside the internet. And yeah, it is strange thinking like I'm, I'm 32 years old and it's been around like this as long as I've been alive. Um, and these key kind of seismic shifts in creating what I would call the corporate takeover of the internet, basically. Uh, it's all taken place in my lifetime and I'm the product of it, in, in a sense, however horrible that is. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's very, very 
beautiful, actually. This is an amazing book. Um, tell me about getting your first phone at age 11, because that's also yeah. very interesting, I, especially because I have two daughters who just turned 12 and I gave them a phone when they were 11 during the pandemic, but I've taken it back off them because I couldn't bear what was happening. <gasps> so I'm really that's curious. That's a power move to take it back. <laughs> yeah, a power move that they hate me for and will pro- probably be, you know, hating me forever for the rest of their life. But anyway... Uh, They'll thank you later, though, when they don't have to, like, go back and delete their child's social media to get a job at some point. I'm hoping, I'm banking on that. But tell me about you at 11. You grew up in Dublin and then you get your first phone at that time. And what do you remember from that time um, looking, what you were looking up on the phone? I don't know. Do you remember, like, the heyday of, like, the Japanese teenager? I remember seeing these kind of fashion stories about these girls in, like, Harajuku decorating their phones. Yes. I, all I wanted was a Nokia phone with loads of stickers and some kind of Hello Kitty click case and like weird ribbons hanging off it and one of those flashing stickers that would pick it up, pick up lights when like a text was incoming. Yeah. So that's my like earliest memory of like fetishizing technology, basically. Um, and then my final. Yeah. So I made this part of the book because I tell the kind of I tell like the story of my lifetime in the very beginning of the book alongside the technological changes. But that year. So I wasn't quite the, like, the real phone we all remember from that time was the Nokia 3210, the best-selling yeah. phone in the world. I actually yeah. didn't have it. I had the 8210. And I, I thought it was really cool because it was featured in the remake of Charlie's Angels. <laughs> it had product placement. But yeah, it was, it was funny because even then I knew that I wanted to be a writer. And in school, you know, I was told like English is a subject that you're good at and like others I wasn't maybe not as good at. But, um, you know, to have a phone and like texting in the heyday of texting, it's actually a form of writing. And it's weird, but suddenly that kind of literary, like self-fashioning, creating this new identity in through a form of media. It's funny how you start doing that even at age 11, where like you create a style of writing. And I remember like, using all these weird words and kind of having like nicknames for friends. And, and it's funny because like, that's what I talk about today in the context of like social media that, you know, we're all creating selves and they're sort of alternate selves, but they're not fully because we have to use our real names attached to them. And that has strange implications, which you, you've written about recently. I remember. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. no, it is. I mean, that parallel and the kind of what's real and what isn't and a version of ourselves that we're all peddling it's fascinating part of your book. But what's really interesting as well from the way you do kind of tell the story of your life through technology and the book is quite dark in some places. I mean, you've been through a lot. You've suffered with mental health issues. You, um, yeah, you've had a lot going on. And you, I love the way you say in the book that you don't blame technology for your problems, right? But that you also, you can see the influence of the internet and social media on the various problems you've had. And if, if we look at like that time of getting the first phone and looking up uh, pro-anorexic websites and that whole issue that you were going through, talk me through that because I suppose that's kind of the stuff that as parents we're terrified about in a of way. Course. you know. And when you were 11, we, we just didn't know as much, but now we know a lot more, I suppose. I know, because in my own childhood, I can remember going from quite literally using an encyclopedic dictionary to try and learn what sex was, to then, like, in the space of maybe two years, having access to the internet, and suddenly everything's there, and you're being hit with all this stuff that you don't even understand. And, like, I think I, you know, I started showing symptoms of anorexia around, like, age 11, and I didn't even know what it was. And then it kind of cohered into discovering these online communities. And because the novelty of even there being an online community there at all 
It's so seductive. I can't even imagine what the modern equivalent of that is, you know, because we're so immersed in kind of deeply flawed things every day. And it gets in on me now, you know, like God knows how vulnerable you are when you're that age. Um, yeah, in terms of mental health, like it was really, I, I, I felt like data like knows that, you know, the internet knows that I have these problems because it has recorded them every step of the way and facilitated them too at times. And like, they're not entirely, it's not entirely to blame, but it has been so inextricably connected with my mental state for better or for worse that I really had better just be honest when it comes to writing a book, because writing is like a place of resistance to all of those other forces that are out there to, to kind of take your soul for want of a better, <laughs> want of a better term. And the other thing that was really important to me to say in the book was that like, I didn't want to write a convenient narrative where everything just got better at the end because that's not accurate. And, and it's easy, you know, for writers to do that because then it kind of massages the ego of the reader that like by writing this book and by you reading it, then everything is better and all is well with the world and there's a happy ending. But the truth is like, I'm still catching myself out all the time doing these behaviors that like can only hurt me. The, the internet is essentially an open invitation to like the most obsessional behavior, the self-harm in a sense, you know, and it's, it's tricky in a sense, there's a parallel with an eating disorder there because when you get like, I had bulimia, I had anorexia, when you recover from an eating disorder, you have to, you can't just like the way that if you recovered from alcoholism, you know, you just put food, you put drink out of your life, you're going to have to eat. <laughs> so you're going to have to relearn your entire way of thinking. And the same thing I think is true of my internet use today, because I'm still using it all the time. I'm even on social media and people might, after reading the book, wonder why on earth am I on social media? I, I wouldn't go so far as to saying it's a necessity. There are writers out there who are going it alone without Twitter and Facebook. Um, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram as well. But I just, I think it just takes self-knowledge and I wouldn't claim to have it perfectly down at this point. But you do have to, sometimes the hard way, learn to know yourself and to know your own instincts. And like, if something is becoming overwhelming, you have to just turn it off. <laughs> um, tell me about then your first job uh, in terms of this social media. It's very interesting because you spent a year as a cheese. Yeah. Explain to everybody about that because it's kind of an incredible baptism of fire where you learned so much about how all these things work, I suppose. Completely. And it was such an interesting kind of formative time for social media. It was around like 2012. It's funny, just this week I started reading um, David Graeber's book, Bullshit Jobs. Yeah. And like, it's making me so angry. I should have read it far earlier. Um, my brother, who's an economist, told me to like read him. And I think I'm going to read the death book next. But like, ultimately working as a cheese <laughs> so you were the voice of the cheese on social media basically. what can we call that like is that a useful job I don't but but at the time we were all so drunk on the the kind of possibilities of social media you know it was this new thing and there were these like reps coming to the company that I was at from Facebook and Twitter saying this has revolutionary potential. This created the Arab Spring. And like, you, if, I early, one early thing that Zuckerberg used to always say was that it gave a voice to the young during the Iraq war or, or like the Afghanistan. And it's like, okay, tell yourself that. Like, <laughs> fine. But like, this is marketing. You're, you're using like revolutionary rhetoric to convince people who sell cheddar cheese to like join Facebook. <laughs> And, and talk to their fans. Like, 
Does the cheese have fans? Should the contents of your fridge be present in your life online as well? I, it's debatable. I don't know like how it's changed in the years since. We kind of only know this brand Twitter's now when there's an epic disaster. Like this week, they were all trying to cash in on George Floyd. Like it's it's so embarrassing, frankly. But like back then, it was on a much like the stakes were lower. Um, I just had to go on every day and write these like I had to write a calendar of posts. And there were certain words I could use and certain words I couldn't use to promote the cheese. It's a really silly job. And I'm sure there will be so many memoirs coming like from people of that generation who are like the early internet workers who are now just entirely baffled by how that was even a real thing. Yeah. And Harry Styles apparently liked this cheese. So you had a lot of teenage fans of the cheese that you were interacting with. And you kind of became disillusioned about it then as well, because you could see how cynically the people behind the cheese were targeting these people. Yeah, completely. Like today, one of the ideas around tech that I find so interesting is like, well, Shoshana Zuboff talks about like the inevitabilism of tech or like um, Eugenie Morozov talks about like techno solutionism. Like we've seen a lot of that during the pandemic. But back then it was like we hadn't even had scandals like things like Snowden was kind of just about to happen. WikiLeaks had happened, but like I feel like its implications were different. We didn't have Cambridge Analytica, for instance. And really, like there was just so much goodwill towards this idea of like everyone should be online. Also, just greed for data, like everyone should make an app. Like, why would you download a cheese app on your phone? No one's going to do that. Like that serves absolutely no purpose. But people were so enthralled to this idea of like the young dynamic men in their hoodies and that we could all have a slice of their genius, you know? And it's funny, even in the space of about 10 years, how I think everyone has sort of soured on social media, even though they also continue to use it. It's kind of the attitude of like the resentful prisoner towards their cage, you know? Um, But I think we all know like it's a hell site at this point. Yeah, we sort of know that, but we still go in there into the hell side. But at least there's an awareness of that that wasn't there before, perhaps. So through that experience, you learned an awful lot about that whole world of targeting and surveillance and the usage of data. I'm just wondering, just going back to trying to get some insight from my own kids. Would you give an 11 year old uh, child a, a smartphone now? How do you feel about that? God, I'd give them a lecture about surveillance capitalism first and then like say you decide. Give us that mini lecture, actually, Roisin. That'd be useful. The evils of surveillance capitalism. Yeah, what would you say? Like, it's funny, though. It's analogous to kind of participating in, like, capitalism with all its flaws. Anyway, you know, like, tech is just one particularly, like, toxic <laughs> wing of the bigger picture. Um, yeah, for, for a child, like, of 11 to be using something like that, it, there is something deeply sad about it. But it feels like it's inevitable and it would be... You know, maybe if you gave them the power to code or something. I I hate that, like, teach your kids to code. It'll make everything great. Like, that's dumb. But maybe giving them some power over technology and teaching them, like, this is not a mystical force. This is made by people with loads of money who decide to take your data and just know when you use a free product, they're getting something from you. Um, You know, maybe if they were able to comprehend those things and use it conscientiously, then... I, I do think it's fair. I like the idea of giving kids the right to choose. And also, 
it does like probably make them safer from a parent's perspective, right? There is that definitely. You sort of know where they are at all times, um, but just who else knows where they are, I suppose, is the issue. Um, you also talk and write about uh, internet subcultures. And I was laughing with you earlier about you've gone to places on the internet that I'll never go to and you've gone there so the rest of us don't have to. But tell us about some of those places and the people you were talking to and the kind of online world that you became embroiled in that would be maybe less well known to mainstream internet users yeah it was this was the thing I would hear for so many years like people when they met me would be like oh you're so internet-y and I was like (laughs) this is not like that strange this is mainstream like if it's not mainstream yet then it will be um and in a sense I think 2016 which is when the disconnect starts really that was the year when the darkest, most fringe parts of the internet kind of came off the screen and came into reality in in a really horrifying way. Um, Like I was, so in the year leading up to that, I, and in a few years leading up to that, I had been sort of carving out a career for myself, writing about strange parts of the internet. Um, And it was kind of delightful, frankly, you know, there's so much oddity, like freely expressed online. And I think certain kind of mainstream parts of the internet still preserve that. Like I think on Reddit, you'll still be surprised by, I ended up talking to someone recently about like a subreddit I follow called the Enlightened Birdman. And it's like written from the perspective of birds trying to overthrow humankind. And like a lot of posts about the Dublin seagulls. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> then when they I, are massive. I nearly got attacked by one in the Stevens Green the other day. Bloody hell. They're planning something. <laughs> they definitely are, Roshi. They are planning something. And um, Reddit is a home for a lot of strangeness. Also a lot of very annoying people. But, <laughs> but still. Um, They're everywhere, those annoying people, though, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, um, yeah, no, they, they really are. Um, but so, you know, I, I kind of got to go into these odd spaces. In the book, I talk a little about like sleep communities um asmr obviously is a great one i wrote about like horror asmr where like the guy who does the asmr is dressed up as like cthulhu and is like whispering you into sleep (laughs) or or like i roisin there will be some people listening who don't know what asmr is because i mentioned it the other day to someone and they didn't have a clue and you forget sometimes so just remind us about asmr yeah it's funny i have this awful tendency of just assuming that everyone has like wasted as much of their life on these things as I have. Um, it's a, I think it stands for audio sensory meridian response. I think that's it. But it's, um, it's when you whisper into the microphone and tap. And the, the kind of combination of the subject matter, which is often this kind of hypnotically monotonous, but like pleasant uh, material with the whispering delivery gives people tingles. Um, I think not everyone has it. Is it only some people that get tingles? (laughs) I think it is. This is now. Some people are very responsive to it, aren't they? Yes. But anyway, it's a whole genre. It's a whole thing. And you got into the horror side of ASMR, which I did not know existed. I mean, there's so much creativity being expressed in these strange, unexpected outlets, you know. And, And in a sense, you can curate your online life to, like, these days, I've kind of taken all the politics out because they just kind of exhaust me and I'll read the news and get that and then I just want to look at drag queens and pictures of dogs and like you know pictures of deep sea squids and like interesting weird stuff so I follow a load of like marine biologists on Instagram you know (laughs) and drag queens but like yeah in the in the years where I was doing that for motherboard which is like vice's tech website I was writing for that 
every week about these online communities. And then increasingly in around 2016 and in the run-up even before, things just became so dark. And it was mainly to do with the alt-right and Trump and 4chan. And, you know, 4chan was before that, it wasn't an entirely evil place exactly. Like it was full of kind of misfits and yet it was tasteless and it was aggressive and it was full of like dubious and problematic slang. Like, but you know, um, it was, it wasn't in inherently like worrying by any means. And there weren't that many people, as far as I recall, going on mass shootings from there. And then suddenly it all just got so serious and so dark so quickly. And you know, it, I had to cover all of this. And that was around the time I kind of took it very, I took it very, very seriously as well. And uh, that led me to complete mental breakdown. Tell me about that, because you described sort of being living in a house chair at the time and really retreating into yourself. And um, I think you said something about sort of almost like you were being eaten by the internet or something like that. I think, I don't know if that, that's probably not your words. I can't remember what, the, what your exact phrase is, but there's something that really struck to me, like you'd kind of, distance yourself from the real world and this disconnect I suppose what the name of the book happened to you yeah describe your life at the time and what was going on for you yeah it's strange in a sense I became the internet's ideal citizen you know the person who's always online like I describe it as like the way that a a bird is fed like force fed to create like foie gras you know it's just sitting in one place scrolling 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 at one point in the book I sum up I I used a program to measure the actual distance that I've scrolled in my lifetime and it's like I think most of the way across Ireland but at that point the scrolling was intensifying (laughs) and uh, yeah there's a chapter near the beginning of the book that kind of describes me like running up to that period where I was I was working as a freelance journalist and I mean okay I think in any line in any part of like being a journalist there's an element of always being on like especially if you're on social media your, your life and your job, there's not really a divide between them, right? Um, and especially then, like, having a computer, having a phone, a smartphone that you carry around everywhere you go, it's always there. Um, and there's something kind of exciting about that. There's a possibility to it and a freedom, but it can vary. If you're in the wrong mindset, I think it can become the most oppressive thing in the world. And and also, like, I just didn't have any money at the time at all either. Like, and I mean, still, like, such a precarious job to be in. But um, back then it was really, really, really precarious. So I just took on everything. I just did everything. And, and that very kind of anorexic mindset kicked in of, like, the same kind of way that I would have thought years before, I can just eat an apple and then I'm fine. You know, that'll fill me up. Like the same kind of logic. It was like, well, I'll find half an hour to write 6,000 words then. And then I'll stay up all night and do this. And I'll get a can of monster energy. And uh, and I figured, you know, there was a kind of virtue in this working to exhaustion. And then on top of that, because of course, eating disorder history, I started going to the gym at night. Um, which gave rise to this essay called The Night Gym, which is near the beginning of the book. Um, it was actually one of the first things I wrote, like before I wrote the book, I wrote The Night Gym. And it kind of became a setting, it sets the tone <laughs> for the descent that is to follow. But it's about, I mean, ostensibly, it's about like the rise of the 24-hour super gym and about me going to these gyms in the middle of the night. But then, you know, all these questions open out from that, like what kind of culture would support a gym that opens all night and who would go to it and why? Um, what kind of mindset would they be in? And the fact that it's in the tech district, the, the gym that I was going to, and the fact that that district, you know, has such this, it has this amazingly 
colorful history, you know, being the Docklands and where there was once like wine cellars for the George, for George and Dublin, there is now a tech incubator under the ground, you know, and the, these towers rising up, the neon, it's, it's a strange and, and side by side with kind of neglect, you know, in like parts um, like North Strand, where I was living at the time and drug wars and people getting shot and stuff. I live in North Strand. It's a lovely place, Roisin. It is lovely though. I loved it. But like, it is such, do you notice that strange juxtaposition where like... Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, It's fascinating to me, like, because it speaks to what Dublin has, the the kind of lifetime of Dublin, you know, in my lifetime as well, these strange changes that have taken place. It's also the most haunted part of Dublin. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And East Wall. very haunted. I didn't know and I that. lived in a haunted house there, actually. Um, wow. Yeah, we would see these shadows behind us. And I found that phrase you used, and it's that the internet had eaten your life. Yeah, yeah. And that's a kind of echo of a phrase that was like a tech, a tech uh, slogan in Silicon Valley of like, software is eating the world. Like, I love like those kind of hollow pronouncements, like move fast and break things. What if you <laughs> change that to like move fast and break people? You know, because that's what you're doing, like both your own staff and the people who use your services. Like, well, that's a Facebook slogan, but software is eating the world. I think it was Andreessen, Mark Andreessen, who said it. I can't remember. But like, I think we live in the aftermath of that now, you know, and it has eaten the world. Yeah. You know, you talk about studies that have shown teenage girls as young as 14 are twice as likely to show signs of media linked depression. I think that's from the University College of London 2018. And one of the biggest issues is the comparing, the constant comparisons. I know people talk about it a lot, but I'd love to get your insights into it because you were in that, I think, because as well as with all your issues that you had you and you were on so much. Um, what's your take on it now? Do you think it's getting any better as it got worse? Where are we with that now? Do you know, it's so interesting. I'm I'm teaching right now at the University of, um, well, NUIG. I'm doing um, on something on their creative writing course. And one of my students wrote about like um, beauty, the beauty industry and like being offered Botox in her 20s today. So I've just come from teaching that class. But it's so interesting how I don't think it is getting easier. I think it's kind of like as with like all those old pressures that were on women before, like you're kind of damned if you do and if you don't. And like even though we have all this content now about like wellness, self-care, positivity, they instantly just get like they get kind of appropriated into the same rhetoric and they become industries themselves. And like we were talking in that class about like um, that writer, Anne Helen Peterson, who writes about like burnout and, you know, the other side of that, because I think that's very real. And I think it's a, it's not even like exhaustion just from your job. It's a kind of emptiness of just not knowing where your life is leading and always being on your toes and social media it's even, I'm like making references a mile a minute, sorry, but like David Graeber in that book, like talks about how social media wouldn't even exist were it not for all these people sitting bored in offices all day, doing things that they're not really sure are meaningful at all, you know? Um, doing things they're not supposed to be doing, really, I suppose, like slacking off, really. Yeah. And like, no matter which way you turn, if, if you, you know, go all in and become an influencer, then you'll get criticized for that, too. And you might get some glory, but then inevitably there'll be the downfall or the cancellation or something and if you go the other route and say like I'm prioritizing my happiness and my wellness you'll probably just be led to goop you know (laughs) or like some other expensive outlet like it's it's very um it's a fraught landscape and 
I just kind of cling to things that I know work for me. Like the thing I've been doing the most is yoga because I love how that like reunites you with your body. I think like the body is the key to all of this. I'll get like symptoms of a panic attack while scrolling on Twitter. And it's not even particularly troubling stuff. It's just like the overwhelming sense of just all these voices coming at me. Um, I don't want to claim what's natural and what's not like, but there is something I do kind of feel like technology has moved so fast that we're still trying to catch up with it. And we're still trying to work out what exactly a, a happy and rewarding life is in the presence of these massive forces. Yeah, there's a there's a gendered aspect to a lot of it. And just on that as well, like the Internet is a particularly exhausting place for women, I think, you know, whether you're trying to maintain some kind of personal brand, even if it's on a, I see it in people who, they're not necessarily influencers, but just friends or relatives I have that, you know, they're very conscious of how they're coming across on Instagram and what they're putting out there and how many likes they're getting. People that I might've thought wouldn't care about that sort of thing. You know, people who, because it's not just a teenage thing, is it? Like it carries on in your twenties and thirties and forties. You're still trying to keep up a sort of a sense of this life that you're living that is covetable or that people should want. And I think women seem to, I don't know, are women more engaged in that than men? Or is that is that a, a, a bad assumption I'm making? It just feels like that to me. No, I, I would agree with that. I, I remember a friend telling me a while back, whose judgment I really trust on this stuff, like to, to be female in the world is to always be a little bit kind of othered from yourself, like to always be a little bit outside yourself. And I mean, it has everything to do with surveillance. Um, and it's an interesting one because now in these times, men are probably under the most surveillance they've ever been, which is almost on a level with the surveillance that women have always, I think, been under since time immemorial. I mean, since basically since like civilization started taking shape and like, you know, kind of gender roles started to coalesce. But like, yeah, it to, and then to kind of already be carrying all this baggage and this pressure of just being watched all the time and being expected to perform, but also to be real, to be genuine, to be happy all the time and yet to do everything effortlessly. And it, it is real. It's, it's said so many times, but it is real. And it goes beyond just saying, like, oh, it's the male gaze. Because at this point, like, yeah, that definitely plays a role in it, but we are turning it upon ourselves and have been doing that for quite a long time. And social media has absolutely facilitated it. And like in the final chapter of, of The Disconnect, I talk a lot about that because I, it's it's the chapter about love um, and like kind of coming to realizing that I'm in love with someone over emails. Um, but it's, it's a kind of love formed under surveillance um, and mutual surveillance too. And like, it strikes me that that's what like intimacy is you know it's it's kind of sharing things that other people you you just don't give to the rest of the world um but like surveillance and and women especially in the age of inter of the internet it's an endlessly rich and complex topic but i mean one of the things that kind of comes to mind is the bit where i write about my daily routine which was this kind of meme on youtube for a long time it's, it's still around a little bit like there is a kind of fixation with routines which oddly enough always reminds me of Patrick Bateman in American Psycho. You know the way it begins with him talking through his daily routine and it's been parodied so many times. But this is such a trope on YouTube and it's usually women doing it. And it really struck me, like they are the internet's Stepford wives. Like it's about the fact that like they literally wake up on camera. They're not really waking up, but they're pretending that they have allowed the camera, the lens and, and the internet into literally their life from waking until going to bed. And Every point in between then is perfect. 
and is camera ready. And they'll even account for you having that skepticism and they'll be like, oh, it's not all glamorous. Sometimes I eat chips and not kale or something. And, you know, and it's all, the thing you don't see is them getting more and more depressed as they scroll, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, or, or meticulously editing together the version of their life that they're presenting. <laughs> I want to talk to you a bit more about the love aspect. But before we go on to that, talk to me a bit more about 2016 and the point where you realised that some kind of withdrawal had to happen, like where you had to disconnect a bit more. Um, you talk about taking an overdose of pills and and then the next sentence is sort of like, but I I survived or something. So it's kind of good. You know, you're reading it. Oh God, well, it's obviously writing the book, but you know, you, you, you didn't succeed in that in that attempt. But... What happened then and how did you realize that something had to change and what you need were you did you have the capacity to do that was it difficult I was so um deep in dysfunction as a way of life um that I didn't realize any of it was actually wrong I like and it's scary that it can happen and I mean it definitely happened to me before with eating disorders too and you have these kind of moments where someone will actually just tell you like sit you down but with depression and with kind of almost like the aftermath of all these other unresolved issues in my life. Yeah, it, it, it was harder to spot. Like since the book has come out, friends have said to me, like, I didn't know. And I said, yeah, because the very nature of it was that I had disappeared. Like I had completely disappeared from everyday life. I wasn't seeing real people anymore. I was just always working, never sleeping, always like neurotically pondering things. Like when I finally got in front of a doctor, I was talking about the end of the world. Like I was like spouting off all this weird stuff. I literally have a sheet of diagnosis that my my CBT therapist, when I finally, I had to go on a waiting list and I finally got it on, on the HSC. And like, he, he was great, really life-changing. I recommend CBT for anyone struggling with these issues if you can get it because it's so targeted and effective. But like my little like diagnosis included things like 4chan, alt-right, Twitter left, like all this like weird, like utterly trivial stuff. Like I, I get that like it matters to some people and it, yeah, some of it was a real threat at the time, but the obsession like that I'm capable of, it's so damaging. So yeah, it, it took taking an overdose, obviously afterwards I realized, Jesus, like my life has become unworkable right now. And it's things kind of like where, you know, you, you could take healthy eating too far. Like the same thing. I had tried to be good. I tried to be like the perfect millennial, really, for want of a less cheesy way of putting it. Work hard, you know, don't be a snowflake. Work, just like re be responsible for yourself, you know, and, and be politically look engaged. Look after your plants. You look Make after sure your plants your... don't die. <laughs> yeah, don't let your cactus die. Um, like all of these things. And I had just made them, and go to the gym. And I had made them so utterly, perniciously just damaging you know it really is a lesson in an obsessive mindset you, you just kind of I know now that my tolerance level for the internet is not maybe what other people's are and I'm, I don't know I mean when I meet people who are like proper Twitter personalities I kind of wonder if something's a little bit off I, I don't know how they're doing it frankly without losing their minds because <laughs> I'm not capable of it and also something that was lovely in writing the book was I was moving from that very fast thinking where you write think pieces and they go on Twitter to then a kind of more reflective, slow thinking. And now I'm doing a bit of journalism still and I'm doing, I'm trying to write another book. But like, 
I try to maintain that in all aspects of my life now. I try not to just make snap judgments on myself as well as on others. It's a kind of thinking that social media really facilitates and encourages because it's also fast moving and you either jump on the bandwagon or you don't, you know. And Yeah, and it's that idea that... Um you know, if you've any sort of a, a following, and I mean, I'm talking upward of a thousand, I don't mean you have to have a particularly big following, that you sort of feel like you have to have an opinion on everything, right? And you have to kind of comment on everything. One thing I've definitely started to, in the last few years, is like, there's some things I just don't have opinions on, or I don't particularly want to share them. And that's okay. It's this constant need to say what you think about stuff all the time. Yeah, I don't want to be like centrist dad or whatever, but like ambivalence is sometimes a good <laughs> thing. Like so much of my my kind of proper d- depression at that time came from seeing all of these strong opinions online and people getting rewarded for having like ever stronger opinions and thinking, what's wrong with me? That I, I don't care about this stuff. Is something really, really wrong with me? But you're so right in saying that. Like you don't have to have an opinion. And furthermore, I mean... I had a really interesting conversation with um, Kieran McMahon, who you interviewed as well um, in that piece recently, but the cyber psychologist, but he made the point uh, recently that like it incentivizes you to not only keep posting, keep contributing content to the machine, but also keep forming more and more extreme opinions. It's like the global warming of hot takes. Like mm. the takes are getting hotter and hotter until the earth is on fire. Because otherwise, if you don't, you won't get the likes. You know, and you'll see someone else whose take is is more extreme than yours and they get all the likes. So you're constantly being driven to form kind of irrational, extreme and impractical opinions sometimes because a lot of the stuff doesn't really translate over into real life. And mm. um, just on 2016, again, before we go on to talk about dating and apocalyptic dating, as you, as you call it, um, that was the year that also Facebook introduced its algorithm um, that sort of changed if you can you'll probably explain it better than me but you used to see things chronologically but then Facebook started to almost curate what you saw d- depending on what they thought you'd like why did that have such a huge impact on on the way sort of people consume the internet and social media the, yeah this fascinates me as a sort of like genesis of many bad things on the internet um i think like there are several that have happened in my lifetime like 2012 was the the kind of origin of like geolocation so like location-based apps were this big phase and that to me is such like i don't think women had a lot of say in that personally because i think women are the ones who are scared of being stalked or anyone in any way marginalized doesn't want to give away their location all the time as part of an app. And here are all these guys in hoodies again, like saying, oh, you'll tell everyone where you are at all times. But that that's in 2012. 2016 is the, yeah, the, the algorithmic timeline. And I love the fact that like it coincided with my own just falling out of time and falling out of space in a sense, just like off the earth. But in the meantime, all of the major platforms were re kind of rigging their timelines Uh, to show us what they thought was most relevant to us instead of what was actually chronologically newest. And I think, you know, at the time, that's a great way to drive engagement, right? It's going to, you'll always show people what they want. That is also, I I honestly believe we wouldn't have had the, the kind of fuss over the phrase fake news had that not happened. I I know like the internet was already doing its best to spread (laughs) disinformation and misinformation and lies and we were all incentivized to spread them through those platforms but that is like the nail in the coffin because once you take away the timing of a story it's so much harder to prove it just keeps coming back again and again like it hasn't happened yet Um, and meanwhile you know 
the the filter bubble it's it's just reinforcing the filter bubble around everyone that's the, the take that term from the book of the same name it's from 2008 but uh, Eli Parser he kind of outlines this idea of us all just being in a bubble built around us to show us our own interests at all times i mean i don't think they considered the political implications of only showing people what they wanted um and of not giving people the news and it comes from also like facebook has always denied that it's a media company which I think would probably help them sleep better at night having pulled off a move like that, like algorithmic timelines, because no newspaper would publish like randomly news from a year ago and then seven years ago and then something about like lizard people and QAnon. And like, you know what I mean? It's, it's a further segmenting, yeah. even as it became more and more I implicated in the state of media today. You know, I, I also, I mean, my other big angry thing that I, I think about a lot and probably will write about is how Facebook especially has just devastated the media landscape in my lifetime. And like, I'm the child of journalists and it used to be a stable profession, you know, and it, it, Facebook has just changed that forever. And it has openly lied to journalists. And a lot of people like I know have lost their jobs because of Facebook, because of the pivot to video that wasn't real. Yeah. And I mean, it's one of the fascinating things, just reading your essay about Mark Zuckerberg, which is really brilliant, um, is that thing of how much they all, Facebook knows about us. Well, I'm actually not an active Facebook user, which was something I was glad of when I read that chapter. Um, but how much it knows about so many people, but how little we know about the likes of Mark Zuckerberg, how is this almost a very boring, anonymous type of normal dude in a hoodie, like you say. Uh, and it's kind of incredible. It's a credible heist that he's um, pulled off, really, isn't it? Yeah, I found it so interesting that, like, he studied psychology at university. It makes so much sense. Yeah, I have this chapter in it called, um, in the Disconnect, it's called The, the Bland God, notes on Mark Zuckerberg. And uh, again, an early one that I wrote before I knew kind of where the book was going. But it's just about that. It's about the enigma the, of, of Mark Zuckerberg and the utter gormlessness of him, too. Like, when I originally wrote the first draft of that essay, he hadn't appeared in the European court and in uh, Congress in America. And then the day that I read that at the launch of The Stinging Fly, he went up in his suit and gave his testimony. And I was like, oh, crap, you know, he's going to reveal himself to actually have some personality now or he'll like <laughs> he'll make some gaffe or something. No, he just like fobbed them off with no, no real answers, saying he'd get back to them later, being kind of smug. Um, the only difference was he'd like dressed in a suit that day <laughs> and yeah it, it hasn't changed like and I'm not saying that he has to put his life out there and like it's funny you look at the example of someone like Bill Gates who like has tried so hard to you know be liked and all he gets is conspiracy theories as a reward it's like according to the COVID people we all have microchips up our noses now you know with Bill Gates chasing us but like yeah Zuckerberg he, he's completely just kept stumm all this time. And it, it is hilarious because he has successfully charmed every last bit of information he could out of one third of the planet. That's what that yeah. that's the numbers that of people using Facebook products, you know, more maybe now. Um, yeah, it, it's a strange enigma. And I mean, in the essay, I kind of take it to a really uh, kind of deranged place by the end where I'm talking about him and like cosmic horror and the kind of, I, I used one of my favorite passages from literature, which is the, the whiteness of the whale from uh, Moby, Dick, Moby Dick, where it's like this horror of blankness, you know, that when you get up close to, to the whale that they're chasing, it just blinds you with the void. And I feel like Zuckerberg mm. is that, <laughs> he's the void. Yeah. 
I'm, I'm sure he loves that essay. I'd love to know what he thinks about it. Um, talk to me about love because you go on some really interesting dates with all these tech bros. You use all the dating apps. Meanwhile, you're sort of falling in love or you have been in love with this guy through emails, which um, there's a happy ending to that. I don't I think we can do, we can do spoiler alert or whatever, but there is a happy ending. Um, but there was some I, I really appreciated your honesty talking about this, these dates and using dating apps because it's a world again that I wouldn't know of because thank God I didn't I have never been on one. I'm sure I would be now if I was, you know, single, but I just wasn't single in that time. So I just never experienced them. So I'm kind of fascinated by it. What did you learn from that experience of going on on these uh, dates with? I think I could sum it up as never again. Um, <laughs> Never again. Um, yeah. Oh, God. I mean, so the reason I kind of grounded in this like apocalypse narrative where like I kind of I, the chapter begins with me like listing all the apocalypses I've survived in my lifetime. There's this wonderful website where you can like type in your birth date and it sums them all up for you. And then what's predicted for the year ahead. But the reason I see that, like all of them wanted to talk about the apocalypse when I went on what the date. I don't know. It was it was real. Like it was very real. And it was so strange. And I think it was just in the air at the time. And it's funny because it was ahead of COVID. But like because ar- around that time probably Mark O'Connell was like just preparing his book on the apocalypse. And I remember hearing that he was writing about that and being like, oh no, I can't write about this now. But like it's very different, you know, <laughs> it's a it's a kind of measly personal apocalypse rather than uh, New Zealand bunkers, you know, <laughs> environmental catastrophe. But like, yeah, it, it's interesting because what is like, you know, if you think of like biblical judgment, like, cause I had to study medieval literature years ago. So it's very much on my mind and like John Donne later and people writing about this, like kind of cataclysmic end times of Christianity. But you know, there's like kind of the sorting of the, the good and the bad and like heaven and hell. And like, what is dating up a dating app, but like the haves and the have nots. It's like an epic judgment. And the other thing that strikes me as like really kind of creepy about it is that it encourages us to treat people the way that like Silicon Valley treats us. So just as kind of disposable pieces of data that you can just sift through, like it's an extremely consumerist approach to seeking love <laughs> and affection or even just sex. But like, it, it's it's creepy when you take a step back. I mean, that was the, the overall mission with the book in a big way was just take things that are accepted as normal all around us, that are marketed to us aggressively, that we use every single day and just take a step back and and assess just how strange they are. You know, I've always kind of known that life is actually stranger than fiction. And when you get into tech, it's really strange. Like the places that chapter goes, like the, well, I mean, you know, I kind of had to talk about incels for one <laughs> as the other side of the coin. Um, and, you know, kind of male supremacy, almost what they're practicing. It's it's really dark and evil. And even just researching those parts of the book, um, really affected me quite badly actually like it's a really good argument not to to write about this stuff regularly because it's so dark it's so sad and like I actually feel sad for them as well because they're so they're gripped in some kind of mental disorder and it's really dangerous because now they're they're going and shooting people like it has this in you I think there's a whole wikipedia page listing all the incel affiliated mass shooters now around the world not just even in America we had Laura Bates on recently about her book men who hate women and it's oh it was fascinating and so depressing and chilling like you say just a whole subculture out there that is coming through into our real lives and people aren't really talking about it 
as terrorism, but it is terrorism that's going on. And it's a nihilism as well. Like it's born out of, and then some people have it just in a kind of casual way. And then some people have it in this truly like devastating and dangerous way. But it comes from, I think, all of us just knowing that like we're disposable and that we're living under this big network, this this thing that exists to, to kind of be a parasite on our lives. And, and, it, and it's constantly taunting us with other people who are apparently happier than we are. You know, it's no coincidence that these subcultures are coming out of that climate. So the book basically is this is a process of recovery from the Internet, I suppose, is, is for want of a better phrase. Um, I'm really interested in your life now and how you've kind of realigned it so that it works better for you, so that it doesn't the Internet doesn't eat your life, so that you have a distance while still, obviously, as a writer, I think you're right. You probably it's sensible to be somewhat on social media. You have to take part in it in some way. But do you now have rules for yourself or how have you kind of balanced it? Yeah, it's constantly just checking in with myself. It was really interesting, like, and again, spoiler alert, but by the end of the book, I moved to Berlin and I'm back now and I'm actually in Wexford right now. But um, the hope is that we'll go back to Berlin. We just need to work out exactly what the fines would be if we had to come back again. <laughs> I don't want to go become like a national news story about quarantine hotels or something. But um, yeah, so we, we I, I was living in Berlin for the last like two years, most of the last two years. And there culturally... Uh, they are so suspicious of tech and of surveillance and even of using a credit card. And it's very interesting as like a cultural legacy of everything that's happened in Germany and in Berlin, Mm. especially. Um, And it it was very kind of, it was lovely to be in that actually in like where it's not assumed that you'll want to share everything about your life online. And, you know, I kind of deliberately had this little nod to it where like one of the pieces reviewing the book said it was Burkheim. There's a scene, it's not in Burkheim, it's actually in the Kit Kat Club, which is a little bit racier in a way. But um, yeah, they take away your phone when you go in. Like um, they, you know, they won't let you take pictures. In Burkheim, they put a sticker on your phone. So like, it's really interesting that just anti-surveillance sentiment, like bleeding over into like, in a way, kind of mainstream culture in in Berlin. And I, yeah, I like that a lot. And even just kind of actively encouraging, you know, pseudonyms and, and even just a reluctance to share your life. So that's been really good for me. But the other thing is it, it really just does come down to self-knowledge and, and skepticism. Just question what you see, <laughs> um, you know? And it's not just about like hating on everyone who like places their hopes in, uh, you know, like something that I find myself thinking a lot about is people seeing Twitter as a form of activism I don't see that remotely. I see that as a form of making money for Jack Dorsey and and really nothing else. But there is like a valid argument that it's an educational tool. I wouldn't like go around telling myself it's going to change the world if I tweet something, but it can definitely open up roots of, you know, learning, thinking, communication. I guess that's what it was meant to be originally. It's a communication tool, sometimes an education or news, you know, so I try to kind of just keep just kind of keep my head basically when I'm on these platforms and and I do it without even thinking I will start like almost like negatively like torturing myself with looking at other people who seem happier than me or like you know doing better than me and I, I but I am better at catching myself I think the other weird thing is that for the last week my phone has broken and I, I'm not in a place where I can fix it so I have this like smashed up phone that won't charge anymore and no means of talking to people except through the internet, through email. So yeah. in one way, I'm tethered to my laptop because I have to keep checking my emails. On the other, like my whole perception of time has changed. 
my my kind of I have these moments where out of muscle memory my phone will just uh, my hands will reach for like a phone that isn't there even just to like check how I look in the camera or something it's really that bad like <laughs> and and I'm doing it completely absently um so it's as a test I mean I'll probably have another phone sometime soon hopefully but it's interesting just seeing like it's not the end of the world by any means it's perfectly mm. fine actually without it <laughs> like yeah or just going out without it sometimes, you know, it's good to test yourself. I also have a block site. So if I'm having a really bad mental health day, I instantly put block site on, on Twitter and on Instagram, and I just don't go near them. And if I do, a big sign comes up saying, don't even think about it. Um, and it, it has helped me actually. But I mean, I wouldn't claim that I'm just like all happiness and light now, you know, like I take, I take meds when I have to, I do yoga every single day because that's like one of the only things that seems to help me. I'm not really very good at it, but, <laughs> and I try to sleep, you know, <laughs> and like separate day from night. I think those are the fundamentals, but like it takes going to a six week outpatients program to learn the fundamentals, you know, <laughs> um, and to kind of stake a claim over those things. Like these need to be in place for me to be happy. And I'm just going to say no to anything that gets in the way of like me having a balanced life. That sounds very healthy and it's something that we all need to probably uh, take on board. Roisin, it's been so fascinating talking to you and reading your book. And I'd really recommend to everyone, even people who feel they're a little bit out of their depth with a lot of this stuff, because I, I feel like that sometimes. But you write so beautifully that um, it's it's really engrossing. And so well done on, on an incredible book. I can't wait to read what you do next as well. Thanks so much. It's so it's so kind of you to have me on. And um, thanks for. Yeah, I'm really glad you enjoyed it. I really did. I'm sure we'll talk to you again when you when your next one comes out. Stay off that phone. <laughs> that was Roshi Kybert there, and I highly recommend her book, The Disconnect. It actually put me in mind sometimes of uh, Sally Rooney's writing, and I say that in a big compliment. There's a really lovely sparseness to it, but it's always engaging. And I'm not fascinated by that subject particularly, but the way Roisin writes about it really is excellent. So I can recommend it very highly to you all. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, by Jennifer Ryan and Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Remember, you can get in touch with us on social at IT Women's Podcast or email us with suggestions of issues we should be covering on the Women's Podcast. And you can email us for that at the Women's Podcast at irishtimes.com. Mind yourselves and I'll talk to you next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.